Today's Fat Girl Podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health, makers of Novavax Lepto, the only four-way leptospirosis vaccine proven to protect against disease, mortality, and leptospiruria. For more information, go to www.stoplepto.com. Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Natalie Marks, a small animal veterinarian at Blum Animal Hospital in Chicago with an interest in infectious disease. Dr. Marks, thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vet Girl podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I know that you've done lectures for us, YouTube live events for us before on all things lepto, and just wanted to pick your brain a little bit more about it because I often feel like vets are under-diagnosing it or under-recognizing it. So first of all, before we begin, do you mind just giving us a little bit more background about who you are, what you do, and how you got into lepto? Sure. Well, I'm going into uh, almost my 20th year of practice and certainly have always had an interest in infectious disease and zoonotic disease and sort of our role as public health officers. And I'm also, um, just like you, uh, have an interest in teaching and mentoring and really found that there was a pretty big gap in what practicing veterinarians had exposure to and probably what we remembered or were taught in school in the areas of infectious disease. And I've done a lot of work with Merck, partnering with them, and they have the same interests. And we work together to create a project to hopefully educate veterinarians and veterinary teams more about what's new with lepto, how to better recognize it, diagnose it, and treat it, and certainly communicate the importance of the zoonotic risk to families. All right. And you mentioned the same exact thing as me. I graduated just over 20 years ago. And when we were in vet school, we were taught if it's icteric in in acute kidney injury, and it wasn't even called acute kidney injury back then, it was acute renal failure, that it was classic lepto. So first of all, do you mind just telling us how that's different and how we rarely see that hepatopathy anymore? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Justine, because a couple things are different. So one is we know that up to 20% of our cases can actually be, quote-unquote, asymptomatic. And I think that's a little bit of a misnomer at times because they may be asymptomatic to the parent or the, the owner, but they actually do have some subtle changes that we need to be recognizing, and the number one thing would be a PUPD patient. So in the past, this probably, when I was in school, would not have been on my differential list for a PUPD patient, but now we know that needs to be up on there, and when you're doing diagnostic testing for a PUPD, quote-unquote, well patient, so these are patients that might be even coming in for vaccinations or just their annual exam, and there's a casual mention of PUPD, we really need to keep a lepto-PCR mat testing on there, depending on, uh, again, the timing of the patient's last vaccine and other clinical signs. But you mentioned those other presenting signs. Actually, less than 12% of our patients actually present icteric with lepto. So I think that's certainly going to steer us the wrong way if that's what we're expecting. Same thing with kidney disease. We can see conjunctivitis with lepto and uveitis. Again, this is a spirochete, and it certainly can create inflammatory changes in the eye, just like other spirochetes like Borrelia. We can also see prolonged clotting time. So you can see ecchymoses and petechia with these patients. We can also see lack of urine production. I mentioned PUPD, but we can see the, the latter certainly. And actually, even some of our patients are presenting with a very similar syndrome we're recognizing in human medicine, which is called LPHS, which is a hemorrhagic syndrome in the pulmonary system, where we see hemorrhage and dyspnea and certainly other forms of respiratory distress. And those patients, unfortunately, have a much poorer prognosis. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. We oftentimes inappropriately blow off PUPD, right? Because we're like, oh, it's such an extensive workup. And remember, the key takeaway is your patient doesn't always have to be azotemic. It can still be PUPD because those leptose patients get that weird diabetes insipidus-like syndrome from lepto. So again, PUPD warrants a more aggressive workup. And don't forget to have lepto as part of your differential. Now, What's the demographic of lepto? Like, do I have to worry about this if I live in the desert or if I live in the Northeast or I'm based out of Minnesota? Where should we be concerned in North America? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because I think that's one of the places that veterinarians can really take their blinders off. When I was in school, I learned look in rural hunting dogs, you know, large dogs that are out in more rural settings and are exposed to creeks and streams and ponds. Well, certainly those dogs get this and we can't ignore it, of course, but we're finding this now in all settings, so urban, suburban, rural. We're seeing this all over the country, even as you mentioned, in the most arid of climates. In fact, Phoenix from February of 16 to April of 2017, had 50 positive canine cases of lepto, all connected back to the sprinkler activity on people trying to keep manicured lawns. So just because we don't have super wet weather or a super wet climate, we absolutely can still get lepto. And interestingly enough, the number one breed right now with prevalence within hospitals for lepto is actually the Yorkie, which stunned me when I learned this. But we know that terriers and specifically dogs under 10 kilograms, a lot of them, are at higher risk. And a lot of people question why that could be. And certainly many of those dogs, many of the pet parents may think that those dogs are not as exposed. However, they do a lot of times go outside or they go into a dog run or a communal space to urinate and are exposed that way. They certainly are exposed to rodents, a lot of them, and this doesn't have to be rats like in urban cities. We see urban wildlife, but also suburban wildlife going into backyards and also food animal reservoirs like cows and pigs on more rural settings. But we also know that a lot of these um, patients that are coming in that are smaller breeds, many of these clients historically have hesitancy to vaccinate their dogs or have been told in the breeder contract they can't vaccinate for lepto or unfortunately have talked to maybe a non-refutable source elsewhere that says that the lepto vaccine is too reactive and their dogs would be better not receiving it. And so many of them go unprotected. And I know that I was anecdotally taught in my first position to not vaccinate dachshunds or pugs or fluffy white dogs for, for lepto because they'll react. And so I think there's still some kind of maybe urban myths or misconceptions out there in the veterinary community about what dogs can receive the vaccine. Thank you. That's good to know. I also know that there are several half mil vaccines out there nowadays. So when in doubt, talk to your veterinary industry partners on that. Now let's go back to clinical signs. What are some of the classic clinical signs in dogs? Yeah, so the number one way we would see an acutely ill patient would be mostly GI. So fever, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, um, hyporexia, so decrease in appetite all the way to full anorexia, uh, complete loss of appetite. And many of those dogs will certainly act more lethargic and depressed. And in people, we recognize myalgia, so you know severe muscle pain and aching like, like the flu. So many of them could even come in sort of that classic spirochete walking on eggshells kind of gait. But as I mentioned, some of them will have ocular change, PUPD, a small percentage will be icteric if they have a serovar that's affected the liver. 
those uh, prolonged bleeding times, and then again, in the more uncommon situation, respiratory changes. All right, you brought up a great point. We oftentimes see all those clinical signs as every single presenting complaint in the veterinary ER. <laughs> so just that ADR, <laughs> vomiting, you know, hyporexic dog. So again, really important that we have lepto on our radar. Now, when it comes to diagnosing lepto, how do we go about doing it? I think there's a lot of confusion out there on how we diagnose it. Yeah, there definitely is. And, you know, we certainly encourage everyone to start with your baseline database, which would include a CBC, full chemistry, if you can, electrolytes, and also a urine that's paired at the same time. We want to make sure people are collecting those. If you have a lepto suspect, that you're collecting those, of course, with proper PPE, making sure your team's protected too. But starting there and looking for some key factors that might point you in the right direction for testing. One of those would be, of course, more than 80% of our dogs do have some form of azotemia with lepto. So that's certainly a key factor to steer you towards lepto testing. Remember, some of those serovars do have a predilection site for the liver, so we can see elevations in ALKFOS and ALT, even total bilirubin. Interestingly enough, though, and it, I guess it makes sense certainly because it is a spirochete, up to 58% of our cases will be thrombocytopenic. And I think in the past, I know I'm guilty of certainly overlooking a mild thrombocytopenia probably right out of school. But I certainly encourage everybody out there listening, if you have a patient that comes in with these GI signs and has a 130, 140,000 count platelet count, um, you know, we can't overlook that. That that could be one of your key factors guiding you to testing. And greater than 50% of our patients will have glucose spilling over into their urine. That's because these leptospires like to really damage the proximal tubules of the kidney and glucose will spill over and then we can have more of an active sediment. So I think those are starting points, and certainly if we start to see some of those changes paired with clinical signs and history, and absolutely if there's a lack of vaccination there, then we can start looking into the two tests, which would be the lepto-PCR and the MAT test. All right, and I think it's so important to reiterate, people are often confused saying, why do I need urine and blood when I'm submitting this uh, this PCR test? But remember, it's going to depend on the acute or subacute nature uh, we want to be able to diagnose it. And remember, we were taught in vet school, even though it was 20 years ago for us, that we always want that pre-treatment blood work because remember that PCR is so sensitive, it will be affected by one to two doses of some type of antibiotic. So please don't just routinely send them home on an antibiotic and be like, oh, I'm going to PCR them five days later. Um, you're you're going to get a negative. So really important that you keep that in mind. All right. Last two things I wanted to talk to you about. How do we treat this? And more importantly, how do we prevent this? Very good questions. Treatment. So if you have an acutely ill patient that's not taking anything by mouth or certainly is hospitalized because of severe azotemia or other organ failure or concern, ampicillin is really the drug of choice IV. And so we want to do that at 20 to 30 megs per keg IV every six to eight hours. And that terminates the bacteremia, which is a great thing because, of course, we don't want this continually spreading throughout the body. If you have a patient, though, that is otherwise, quote unquote, well, maybe that PUPD patient that comes in for a wellness exam or is clinically stable enough to take things by mouth, doxycycline would be the drug of choice there, 10 megs per keg once a day for 14 days. And that's going to help clear those leptospires out of the kidneys. Important to note, though, if you do have a one dog in the house that you're treating for lepto, you want to treat all of the dogs in the house to prevent reinfection. Certainly for supportive care, of course, it's really dependent on the organ that's stressed. So if you have an azotemic patient, we want to do pretty aggressive fluid therapy. Usually it's two and a half to four and a half times maintenance, and that's a pretty high rate. So if you're hospitalizing in your practice, we want to make sure, one, you have a closed collection system, not only for the safety of your team, but also so that you're monitoring ins and outs properly and also making sure that you're monitoring for any kind of fluid overload. 
On average, these patients need about two to four days of hospitalization, some, of course, much more than that, depending on their level of kidney stress and injury. Antiemetics and, and H2 blockers, excuse me, are also very important, not only if you have a classic GI patient that's coming in, so we can help them return to um, normal nutrition and, and comfort, but also remember a lot of those very severe acute kidney injuries are producing pretty nasty cytokines that increase gastric acidity, and those patients can have pretty horrible heartburn feelings, reflux, and even some gastric ulceration. So we want to help give that protection, and certainly if the liver is affected, giving them SAMI and ursodeoxycholic acid for liver support as well. But prevention-wise, of course, prevention is always the core of best medicine, and certainly avoidance therapy is not the way to go with this disease. I strongly, strongly encourage not only educating our clients, of course, about the risk factors and reservoir hosts and making sure they know where their dogs can be picking up lepto, but more importantly, the power of vaccination. The gold standard vaccinations right now protect against four serovars, and included in that is the ones most commonly affecting canines, but also the ones that are most commonly affecting humans, because we know that one in 10 humans that are that is affected by lepto actually develop that from contact with their pets. So, we're protecting the whole family here. There's been lots of uh, technology advancement in vaccine development, including diafiltration, which is a process in which they can really reduce the amount of protein in those vaccines, so it's a much smoother and less reactive vaccine. Kidney and liver disease occurs much less often in vaccinated patients, and we can also prevent leptospiremia and thrombocytopenia, and most importantly, mortality by doing the proper vaccination protocols for our patients. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I think the biggest takeaways that you mentioned, again, it's not that classic rural farm dog that turns icteric that we were taught. It's that terrier urban dog that's pretty small. Again, if you ask most pet owners, is your dog exposed to rat urine? Of course, they're going to say no, right? Um, but we know that lepto can be uh, quite devastating. Um, the prognosis is uh, fair. Do you know numbers? What should we be quoting a pet owner? With lepto, I mean, the prognosis with it really is dependent on number one, getting an early diagnosis, and number two, aggressive treatment. And certainly if those two things are happening and that client is allowing you to do what we know to do, then prognosis is about 80% survival, which is pretty good. Um, we'd certainly like it to be higher. But the one thing we have to remember with those patients is if those patients are the ones that have had acute kidney injury, many of them will certainly survive but may have lingering chronic renal insufficiency. So I think it's important to prep those clients that Certainly, we might be out of the woods with lepto, but these also might be patients that we have to nutritionally support and certainly monitor blood work as that patient ages to make sure we're staying ahead of what their kidneys need. Excellent point. Knowing that one out of every four patients can die from this, it is so important that we educate our pet owners appropriately, especially those small dogs who are like, um, oh, you know, my breeder told me not to vaccinate. The vaccines now are ultra purified. They do not have as high of a, a risk as it did decades ago. So please be aware of that. Really important that we educate our clients on this. My dog swims a lot. He swims in the head of the Mississippi here in Minnesota. He is vaccinated every single year for this. And I do think it's also medically important, and you brought this up, four-way, not two-way. We want as much protection as we can. So really important. Any last tips you want to leave us with when it comes to communicating to pet owners about the zoonotic risk or uh, just general education? Yeah, I think they actually are all summed up by a recent study Dr. Jason Stull did in Chicago, actually, where I'm from. And it looked at three years of lepto cases here and brought up some, I think, two incredibly important conclusions. One was that 
16 of these cases out of 45 were less than six months of age, and only one of them had completed a vaccination protocol for lepto. So point one, we have to start talking about lepto from the very first appointment. And many of those appointments are at eight weeks of age. And these vaccines are labeled, the Novivac is labeled at eight weeks of age. So I think it's important to be talking about that because clients need to understand from day one the risks of zoonotic disease in their family and how they can best protect their pet and, again, the humans in the household. Number two, and this just goes to the impact and the core of prevention, which is vaccination, they found that dogs that were not vaccinated for lepto were over 20 times more likely to be infected with this disease than a dog with a completed vaccination protocol. So if that's not, you know, certainly odds in your favor, that protection is going to be so much more effective in keeping your dog healthy than risking and certainly doing avoidance therapy. I don't know what is. So I certainly use that statistic very, very frequently especially with clients who have the breeder notes or certainly historical risk or exposure of um, and hesitancy with vaccination. You know, again, as you mentioned, these advancements in technology and the fact that we know that the vaccine is so effective. And again, these dogs that are vaccinated are 20 times more protected than the dogs that aren't. And I think, again, those are odds in our favor for sure. Excellent information. Again, so important, so important that we talk about preventative medicine in this scenario. Even though 80% of these dogs survive, you should be doing blood work probably once or twice a year on these dogs because we want to make sure they don't have the chronic manifestation of this or the chronic lesions to their kidneys. So again, we don't want our patients to have to be diagnosed with chronic renal failure down the line. Dr. Marks, thank you so much. Really appreciate such great information about how we can keep our canine patients safe from leptospirosis. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me again.